Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. You are listening to A Kingdom That Can Never Be Shaken by Guest Minister Reverend Laura Smith. As Peter said, our scripture lesson is uh, from near the end of the book of Hebrews. And the context for this really is this whole long argument that has been made about Jesus as our great high priest, an argument we rehearsed in that spectacular hymn that really sums up a lot of the book of Hebrews in just a few verses. Uh, So Jesus, as our high priest who has blazed a path for us to the heavens, has been a theme in Hebrews up until this point. And also the fact that where Jesus is now is more real than where we are. We live in the sketch, in the shadow. He lives in the real place the true temple, not made with hands. So in that context, let's start our reading with chapter 12, verse 18, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, But now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words, once more, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. So the first section of this passage, you have not come, tells us what is not our reality. It's a pretty compelling section of what is not ours, verses 18 through 21. A mountain that can be touched, fire, darkness, gloom, storm, trumpets, a terrifying voice. I trust you recognize that that's a description of the people of Israel coming to Mount Sinai. Almost everything in that little section comes out of Exodus chapter 19, 
The fact that Moses himself was terrified comes out of Deuteronomy, where he's rehearsing the whole history of the Exodus. And then he talks about his own terror as he was w walking up the mountain. Not so much terror for himself, but terror that maybe God would destroy all these people. You have not come to that. Well, I don't know how you feel about that. I, I'm not sure. Um, how the preacher of this, this is probably a sermon, the book of Hebrews, one big, beautiful, fantastic sermon, best sermon I know of ever having been preached. That's why it's hard for me to preach Hebrews. I always feel like I should just read the whole book to you because it really holds together that well. But I don't know how the first uh, preacher of this text expected people to respond by saying, you are not come to this. I respond, I have to tell you, with a little disappointment. When I read those Old Testament stories of the people of Israel out in the wilderness, encountering God, it seems so visceral, so close, so real. Thunder and lightning. The glory of God descending on Mount Sinai. This is the closest they've come to him. This is the moment where they're offered actual encounter with God in ways they have not yet had. They've, they've left Egypt in belief that he's there. They've seen a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, but now, now there's a real encounter. This is the place where the law is being given. It is a place of grace because the law is grace. It is God's directions for life, but it's also terrifying. And you can read in Exodus 19 that on the one hand, the people of Israel are so eager for this. They purify themselves. They go through all of the rituals because you mustn't go up on that mountain without being pure. And they do all of it. And yet when it comes to it, the thought of going on that mountain, of trusting that that purification was good enough, that it would be safe for them, they say, Moses, please don't make us do it. This, this pull of longing and the, the pullback of fear is so interesting to me in that story. But there is something there that they long for, that they want. And Moses cannot be kept back. And Joshua cannot be kept back. And a few other leaders go up the mountain. This is such a compelling story. Gregory of Nyssa wrote a, a work called The Life of Moses, and he built an entire theology of our spiritual lives with God based on Moses going up that mountain. Approaching God. And to be told, we are not confronting that. Not confronting that. Is that good news? Is that a relief? Or do you have some regret? I think the people of Israel, after this, started to have some regret that more of them hadn't run up that mountain. Certainly the Psalms are full of prayers where people say, all I want is to see you. All I want is to be closer to you. I can't seem to get into your presence. I come to the temple, the tabernacle, that's great. I want to be right where you are. The same longing that Moses expresses, they're all expressing it as they sing the Psalms, and I'm sure not every Israelite felt that. But there were some poets who were writing it down, who were longing to see God's face, and surely they looked back on that moment and thought, what would have happened if we had all just run up the mountain? Even if we, we die, let's run up the mountain. 
One of my favorite theologians is Bonaventure. He's a 13th century theologian, a Franciscan. He's a contemporary of Thomas Aquinas, but his style is quite a bit more elevated than Thomas Aquinas's. And in his most famous book, it's called The Journey of the Soul to God, he also is talking about climbing, ascending to God, and then sometimes he switches the metaphor to going into the tabernacle all the way to the Holy of Holies. And at the end of this work, he says, well, the Bible says if we see God, we're going to die. So let's die. And that's sort of how I think we should feel. We should feel that seeing God is worth risking death. In fact, it's worth going through death. And in fact, it's what all of us are going to do, go through death in order to see God. So, you have not come to this. Instead, you've come to something else. Now, that structure, that little rhetorical structure, not A, but B, tends to leave us thinking that we're going to have a real contrast here, right? We tend to think, okay, so if it's not that, it's not that terrifying, numinous, uh, dangerous, wild version of God, maybe now we're going to have something peaceful and loving and comforting and safe. And there are plenty of people in our culture who think that that's exactly what Christianity should be. Mostly they're, they're pundits and talking heads on talk shows and news shows who don't seem to know a whole lot about Christianity as it really exists, and they'll talk about that wrathful God who has been rejected by the all-loving, all-welcoming, all-inclusive Jesus, and why aren't Christians living up to their own gospel, they'll say. Now, I trust that none of you believe in that stereotype or, or caricature of our faith. It's not true to either the Old Testament or the New, and yet it's so pervasive in our culture, I think it kind of colors the way we read things. Even when we don't believe it, it sort of shapes our expectations so that if you haven't read this passage for a while and you've read it's not this, you might now be expecting, oh, and we're going to hear all about grace now and how God is just all love. And the fact that in our tradition, we have sometimes played law versus grace to such an extent that we've hardly recognized any continuity between the old and the new. We've, we've been guilty of some of that ourselves in playing up the, the burden of the law, the freedom from the law that comes with grace. That leads us to expect that too. But in fact, that's not what the second vision is. Instead, you have come to something that is all that but more. You have come to something more. And that has been the pattern in Hebrews all along up to this point. In the Old Testament, God spoke through prophets. Now he has spoken through his son. In the Old Testament, Moses got to sort of glimpse the back of God. We see the face of God in Jesus and his glory revealed in the presence of Jesus. We have the ultimate high priest. They just had Aaron. Over and over in this book, we have seen here is the pointer, the symbol, the thing that gestures toward, and now here is the reality. So I think that we have to read this next section expecting that all of that numinous longing and yet fear, the, the presence of judgment, the presence of power, the wildness, the, the grandeur of Sinai is not gone. It's more. 
And in the next section, indeed, we start by saying, where are you? You've come to heaven. That's where you've come, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that is now in heaven that will descend to the earth, according to Revelation, right? That's the vision in the book of Revelation, that the heavenly Jerusalem descends. But the heavenly Jerusalem is there, the reality of our life. And the heavenly Jerusalem is also the perfect temple. It's built with the dimensions of the temple or of the the tabernacle. Uh, So that here is this holy of holies place where God is fully present that is also a city where we will dwell. Those two things overlay each other in the heavenly Jerusalem. And you have come there. Not you're going to come there someday. You have arrived in the heavenly Jerusalem. And the first thing you see are thousands and thousands of angels Our era, we don't talk a lot about angels, probably because there was that little time period there a few years back where, you know, every Hallmark store had strange angel stuff going on. And I think Christians wanted to say, well, whatever we believe about angels, it's not that. And we didn't want to feed that beast at all. But still, angels are rather present in the Bible. And whenever one shows up, The person who is confronted by that angel falls down in terror and has to be told, don't be afraid. So the presence of thousands and thousands of angels is not meant to be comforting or safe. This isn't a bunch of cherubs here. This is an amazing expanse of power. This is a heavenly host, which can also be a heavenly army. This is a sign of God's glory that he is being magnified by all these angels. And we see the spirits of those made perfect. So those who have already died and have gone through the purifying fire and have been perfected. But we also still see God as judge. So that that fear of judgment that was there at Sinai, that's not gone. In fact, the text is really clear. If they didn't escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns on heaven? The judgment that comes from heaven is much more serious than the judgment that comes from earth. Being judged at Sinai, you might have died. Being judged from heaven, you could face eternal death. It's a much more significant sort of judgment. It's, if you think about a weight falling on you from a, a short distance and a weight falling on you from a long distance, the one that comes from far away is going to do more damage. And that, that weight of judgment is coming to you from heaven. So be aware. Most of all, we have come now to Jesus The one we've been reading about for the past 11 chapters, Jesus, who is our heavenly high priest, which means he is exactly like us in that he is fully human. He has ascended in his humanity. He can't be our high priest without being like us in every way but sin. But he is also the exact imprint of his father. So he is giving us perfect knowledge of his father while he is also being our perfect representative. We've been hearing all about his priestly mediatorial ministry, and here we just 
refer to that quickly, that he is the mediator of a new covenant, but that takes in everything that's been going on in this book so far. And it is his sprinkled blood that he brings into the Holy of Holies, the true one in heaven before his Father, his sprinkled blood that he puts on the true altar, his human blood, and his living human blood that is coursing through his veins as his living human heart is beating. And he brings all of that as offering before the Father. And that blood is calling to us. And it's not saying, I hear the blood of Abel saying, you are guilty. That's what the blood of Abel said to Cain. No, it's saying there is grace. There is new life. The path that Jesus has blazed to heaven is a path you can travel. But some of you who are looking at the text will notice that I left out one thing. We also come to the church, the church of the firstborn. And I'd like to concentrate on that for what time we have left. The church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. So the firstborn are those who have been born once by baptism, not yet by resurrection. The firstborn are us. Here we are. Firstborn are we. Sorry. I try to be grammatical, but you know, there are some things where it's just really hard. It feels so artificial. It's fighting such a rearguard action that I just sometimes can't pull it off, but okay. We are the firstborn. That's better. And I don't know how you feel about that, but to see the church in that context, thousands of angels, perfected spirits, the judgment of God, the high priestly work of Jesus, and the church. It seems like one of these things doesn't belong somehow. The church just seems so mundane, so kind of weak to be in the presence of all that glory. So, is the church so very weak? Is the church so lacking in glory? What we're told here is that already now we are citizens of the new heavenly Jerusalem. In Colossians 1, Paul says, you have already been transferred into the kingdom of the sun, the kingdom of light. Same idea here. You already belong in the heavenly places right now. And it's not you individually, but all of us together. We belong there as a group. And it's not just this group, but all the churches around the world today. And it's not just those, but all the churches stretching back That is the vision of the church that we're being invited to catch, that we are people whose true home already now is the throne room of God, where Jesus, our high priest, is living, the one who is head of our body. This is the place where we encounter all of this numinous glory, all of this dangerous wildness. This is the place we encounter the judgment of God, and the grace of God. This is the place for us that Sinai was for the people of Israel, this church. Well, the church, Paul tells us, is 
is a living building built of living stones. And each one of us is a stone in the church. And if you think about a big living building, you can see that that any individual stone is not terribly impressive. Think about a big cathedral. Think about these pillars. Look at one brick. Not terribly impressive, one brick. But all the bricks together, look at what they do. So one way to think about the majesty and the magnificence of the church is to step back and get a bigger perspective. To get a larger vision. The larger vision is not less true than the close-up vision. I think we often feel as though, well, I'm really active in the church, I'm very involved in the church, so I know the truth about it. I know the reality. I know all the dirty secrets that nobody else knows. I know all the weaknesses and all the fallibilities. I know all the ways in which the church really isn't all that great. As if the close-up is the real and the big picture is imaginary. That's not necessarily true. The big picture shows you lots of things you can't see when you're an inch away from one brick. So somehow, we have to come to a place where we believe that this encounter we have with God in the church is more magnificent, more dangerous, more glorious than that encounter at Sinai. It's like if you remember when you were a little kid and your family went to the, the, the neighborhood swimming pool and you were kind of afraid of the swimming pool and you were afraid of the deep end and you wanted to go swimming, but you were afraid of it. And you ended up spending your whole day in the really shallow end or maybe even over in the wading pool watching the older kids going off the diving board and sort of envying them and also being really glad you were not on the diving board. If that's the Sinai experience, our experience now is of going to the ocean and of standing on the shore and it's a bright blazing day and the sun is beating and the waves are so high, far higher than we are, and we're invited to plunge in. That's where we are now. We're facing this oceanic experience of God's glory. And we have to train ourselves to believe it's here, to see it here, to expect it here. Because the text ends by saying that at some point, God is going to shake the earth and the heavens, and everything that's not lasting is going to disappear. That's going to happen to every church, along with everything else. I assume that there will be churches that look pretty fantastic, that will be shaken. There won't be much church left. Say, there wasn't any glory in there. And then there will be churches that look like they're not very successful, and they're sort of sad-looking to outside eyes, and they get shaken, and the light springs out. And most of us are in churches that are going to be some mixture of that, where the things we expected were lasting might disappear, and the things that we thought were passing are going to turn out to be of eternal significance. 
How can we tell? How can we know? How can we figure out how to spend our time here in this place that that Hebrews is calling us to? Some time ago, I heard a sermon from a friend of mine that I I keep listening to and thinking about. Um, I was traveling, and I stopped to visit him, and it happened to be a weekend, so I went to his church. Had never heard him preach before. He's a pretty good preacher. And he was talking about sort of the planning stage that his church was in and the, the things they wanted to do in the future. And he said, you know, a church can do an awful lot through our own natural powers. We can run a lot of meetings. We can put on beautiful worship services. We can practice great music. We have natural skills, you know. Some people have a natural skill of being able to talk, and they get up and they speak engagingly, and it doesn't have anything to do with the Holy Spirit at all. It's just they got some natural ability. He said a lot of churches can run for a long time depending completely on their own competence, their own ability. But the Bible tells us we're supposed to be running on the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and I think you have to be running on some, some power other than your own to risk things, to risk doing something that's bigger than you, to dive into a wave that's higher than you, to launch yourself into the life of faith and launch yourself into an experience of God that is beyond your control. And as long as the work of the church is all being done based on our natural abilities, by the things we're really good at and the things we enjoy doing and the things that feel safe and the things that are easy for us, we're not launching ourselves into the arms of the Spirit and letting him carry us. Now, from the outside of a church, I think it's very hard to know whether people are or are not doing that. And even inside, I think about my own church. I don't know which people in the church are doing that and which aren't. But I think you might know whether you're doing this. What are you doing in your life in the church? What expectations do you bring to the church? Do you bring the same kinds of expectations you'd bring if you belonged to a great club? that you'll hear something interesting, that you'll have a nice time at coffee hour, that you'll make some friends? Or are you genuinely here expecting to have an encounter with Jesus, to see him, to be brought into his presence, to be transformed by the spirits uniting you to him? Are you expecting to be plunging into the wave of the divine when you come here? What we are being called to through the whole book of Hebrews is union with Jesus. All the way through the book of Hebrews, the point of the book is Jesus is connected to you and you can be connected to him. Where he has gone, you can go. So ultimately, the way we plunge into this new life The way we we embrace our life in the heavenly Jerusalem is to focus completely on Jesus, to keep our eyes fixed on him, to long for him, to ask the Spirit to stir up our desire for him, to pursue a union with him that makes all other treasures seem small. 
And throughout the Bible, we find people who are doing that and who can say things like Paul says, everything else is now trash for me. Throughout Christian history, we see people who do these things, who say, all other treasures are really worthless compared to what I've just found here. That treasure of a relationship with Jesus is something he has designed us to pursue in community with other Christians. He has designed us to pursue that treasure in places like this. And the more we allow ourselves to surrender to that search, the more realistic it will be that what happens here in this place is more magnificent, more miraculous, more glorious, more powerful than anything that happened on Mount Sinai. Even the moment when Moses saw the back of God, what is being offered to you is more. What is being offered to you is greater. Let's claim that promise as we pray together. Lord Jesus, we long to see your face. Some days we don't long to see your face. Some days we forget all about longing for you. We're so busy. We can be so tired. We can be so distracted. We ask you to pull us back to you every day, every moment, capture our attention, call to us, override the part of our will that wanders. You know how much we like to wander. Work in us so that we will love you more every day, long for you more every day. See your beauty and your glory more clearly every day. And in the light of your glory, show us what in our world is ephemeral and worthless. What is going to be shaken and pass away? What is it that need not worry us for another moment? And what are the things that will last for all eternity? What are the things where we should be investing our energy and our hope and our love? We cannot see those things without your help, but with your help, we can see through your eyes. We can have your mind. So we ask you to remake us and give us a vision of your church in all its power and beauty and glory. May we come to love the church because of how much we love you. May we come to see the church as your bride, being prepared for you, and may we find our place in that preparation. Give us a vision of the church in other times and other places so that we can see more clearly what is lacking in our time and our place. And as we pursue you, as we love you, may we also be drawn closer and closer to one another so that you will be truly our head knitting us all together into one community where your love 
and your grace are poured out through us to one another. We pray it in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.